Coast Church Charlotte. with us today. We're honored to have you. We thank you for taking a chance on us. We invite you to make yourself at home. And I already feel the presence of the Lord here in this house here today. I already do. Um, I, I want to let you know, however you know us, that this is a praying church and that we have, we have a lot of people who believe in prayer. And we want to see God work among us according to his purpose and according to his will. Um, I'm preaching from this subject. I'm answering this question. Does God care about me? Does God care uh, about me? And I want to take the question seriously, not just in kind of a religiously dismissive way that sometimes us religious people can be guilty of doing. Um, I want to imagine that it's a serious question asked by a serious person. And I want to see how the scripture uh, answers this question and why it is more unique than we perhaps would think it is on first review. So this sermon came from Friday morning devotional. Um, I try to do a short thought at 7 a.m. in our early prayer. If early prayer doesn't work for you, that's fine. If you, if it does work for you, we pray for 6.30 to uh, whenever it ends. Uh, most mornings, even Wednesday morning now, Sister Bridget is leading the Wednesday morning prayer. So five days a week we're having early prayer. Again, it's not to make you feel guilty. It's if Not everybody has the same uh, cycle. And so our goal is not to make anyone feel like, well, oh, they're, you know, that's not the point. If it works for you, or if you're in a season of your life where you feel a drawing, it's a great place to come together with others and, and pray together and, and grow together. But I am not trying to use it as a anybody's more spiritual than anybody type of thing. I think the church world and church history has enough of that, and it's unhelpful. Um, but in Friday morning at 7 a.m., I started just uh, kind of reflecting on what I had had felt in the prayer time and realized quickly that it was if I was going to take the question seriously, I needed to do more than just quote a scripture of reassurance. You see, for people who are already believers, watch this, for people who are already believers, a scripture of reassurance is all you need. You understand what I'm saying? You're already a believer. You're already orienting yourself around the kingdom of God, the promises of God. That's all you need. And a lot of times our church services are some version of this. We come together, we quote to each other, we answer the questions that we ask, but the world isn't asking, and we talk to each other and pretend like our effort is in some way speaking to the larger audience because it speaks to us. Um, now, that's a very human thing, and it doesn't make us bad people to do that. I think every organization of any type ends up struggling with the relevance of speaking to a larger audience or just quoting reassurances one to one to another. There is even a term uh, we refer to uh, in this kind of a thing, and we call it group think, um, or we talk about how uh, people become isolated by the
a common core which unites them and increasingly disassociated from the larger need. Uh, I want to remind all of you that Christ called us to have a connection with at his table, but to have a mission outside the dining hall. We, if we're going to get this right, can I have a big amen? We need to have a connection at the table, and then we need to have a mission in the field. A connection at the table and a mission in the field. Lord Jesus, I'm praying you would help us be a church that has a connection at the table and then a mission in the field. And I pray that you would help us to demonstrate that which you want demonstrated, not that which we're proud of. Um, it's easy for us as uh, people who are working within a context of uh, theological and religious inheritance, uh, we have things that we're proud of, but it's not necessarily what you asked us to demonstrate in the Word of God. There is a naturally occurring fruit that should come in the lives of people who are ca- uh, called by your name and responding to your uh, work. Uh, help us in Jesus' name. All right, let's get started. Does God care about me? Again, let's take the question seriously. Let's start with the surprise of uh, Elohim, the surprise of the promises of Yahweh, the surprise change in basic belief that happened with the Judeo-Christian introduction. Uh, There is no shortage of belief in deities. There is no shortage of belief in um, God, so to speak. All cultures, the seeking the supernatural is not about Christianity. It's about humanity. There is no culture in all the story of our histories that does not have a society that is not seeking meaning beyond self. They are torn between the echo of divinity within them and the lusts of flesh within them. And so they have this balancing act between how do I please God or gods versus how do I serve myself as though I were God. This is not a Christian problem. It is a humanity problem. And if we're going to take this question seriously and be able to speak to the need of the hour, we need to do more than reassure each other in this issue. And so we come down to this reality, and that is this reality. In all of human history, somebody say all. All of human history, there are two basic structures, belief structures, I I should say, about uh, divinity. There are gods, all societies believe, that must be in some way entreated. They must be in some way pleased. They must be some way appealed to or, as we would say, appeased in order for you to have the good things in life. All human societies believe that there are deities that must be appeased in order for you to have your best life, in order for your crops to grow, for your children to flourish, for your health to be strong. You need the help of something bigger than yourself. All human societies agree on this until the modern age when we fulfilled the full circle of worshiping ourselves as gods rather than seeking that which put us here in the first place. The second structure of all cultures is that there are some people 
that by living the whole of their life in a certain way are more than just a seeker, but they become a representative of a god or access to those gods, and all societies think of them, the, the definitions can change, the word can change, but that which would be most helpful, that word that would be most instructive to us is priesthood. All societies believe in higher powers and that there are some people who because of their uh, pursuit, the way they live, they function as a representative of if not that deity, at least the path to that deity. Now, I've not introduced anything strange to you. I've given you the whole of the human story, do you see? Now, we have a difference that happens when Yahweh speaks. There is a change that happens in the atmosphere when Elohim speaks. There is a transformation of basic belief structures when the source of all that is good, the Most High God, the fairest of 10,000 to my soul, the lily of the valley, the bright morning star, he of whom the prophets spake, who who was the hope made to the fathers. Things change. Somebody say things change. We go from two basics beliefs that everybody has, we go to modifications of those beliefs. The biggest one is number one, the first change in the truth as given by our creator. There's a change, and here it comes. Uh, there's only one God you need to talk to. You don't go to the crop God for crops and go to the fertility God for kids. Come on now. You don't go to the war God for war and the love God for love. You see, as long as there's a polytheistic society or belief structure where you have all these gods, there can be no source of ethics or right living. Because you just find the God who agrees with what you already want to do. You want to cheat your neighbor? You worship the trickster God. And here comes Judeo-Christian truth. And it says, no, 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 no. There's one God. There's a heavenly host. There's many beings of spiritual formation, including yourself. But there is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. This is known in Judeo-Christian history as the Shema. Deuteronomy 6 and 4, it is foundational. There's only one God you need to talk to. He is able to do all things and all things well. He's able to fix you, heal you, bless you, keep you. He knows what you need when you don't know what you need. He knows how to bless you when you can't find blessing in a burlap sack. He knows how to keep you. He knows how to love you. He knows how... There's only one God you need to talk to. Number two, he isn't by nature indifferent or angry. He isn't distracted by other things. He's not finite where he's thinking about this so he can't hear your prayers. But he's infinite. He's got it all in his hand. 
your drama, your problem, your big stuff, your little stuff. Elbow your neighbor and say the little stuff. Don't forget the little stuff. Does God care about the little stuff? He's infinite. Why wouldn't he? It's not like his CPU is overloaded. He isn't angry by nature. Uh, Exodus 34 and 6 gives us that, that beautiful image of, uh, I, don't, I didn't put it in my notes other than to reference it. I thought that I had it memorized, but I find that at this moment it is gone from me. Um, but the Lord speaks to Moses and says, look, I'm full of mercy. The Lord passed before and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. I got an amen from Brother Rick. I need some other amens. Number three, here's a surprise. We're going way back in human history, <clears throat> way back in human history. Where the more you wanted something from your deities, the more you had to pay. Well, so what was the highest price you could pay? Human sacrifice. God came along and said, nope, nada, stop it. Makes me sick, abomination. And lest they wonder, because there's some confusing in the oldest scriptures of the Bible. There's some confusion of people thinking this is the way. All of us are influenced by heathens. Even today. That's right. See, I was preaching about my children. Y'all don't even know it. That's funny. Um, all of us are influenced by heathens. And uh, the Lord comes down so strong that one of the formative pictures, the foundational illustrations, the images drawn by God to all the generations to come, at the very first generation, he sets down this standard. I don't want your son. I'm going to give you my son. First generation. What's first generation of Judeo-Christian? Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had father. This is the Father Abraham dance. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Number three. Oh, that was number three. Stop with the human sacrifice. It's a slap in the face. It's you saying to me, I don't want the gift you've given me. Which is the same thing suicide is. It's you saying to God, I don't want what you've given me. You are placed there in an imperfect world to make a beautiful garden. And you say to him, no. Don't have time to preach about that. And I do want to say, to be fair, most of the people who end up taking their life are fighting mental health issues. And because you cannot see it like a broken leg, you struggle to understand it. But it's just as real as a broken leg. So we don't need to have be dismissive or ugly toward those people. And we certainly don't need to, in any way, uh, be insensitive to that. They need the same grace that all of us need. And can I have a big amen? Here's the fourth big truth. The fourth big truth. I know, I know some of you don't like it as much when I preach like this, and I apologize to you, but sometimes you got to let me be me, okay? All right, this is, how I, this is how I preach. Number three was human sacrifice. Number four. What's number four? Are you ready for this? You're going to be surprised by this. God actually cares how you feel. 
Now that's a surprise. Nobody saw that coming. <laughs> Nobody saw that coming. That God would care about how you feel. This is a, a, a huge problem to the uh, ancient world because all of the Platonic, which is Plato's philosophy and the Greek inheritance, all of them believe in deities. Remember, Socrates was put to death because he supposedly was accused of talking about, about the Greek deities, which was an absurd trick played by people. But people love to kill each other. We've been doing it for years. God help us. And um, so this inheritance of the Greek world, they believed in gods, but not that a God who would care. In fact, this was a belief. A God who would care about humans and human things would un-God himself. That's what they believed. Uh, that's why to the Greek, the cross was a stumbling block. And so it's a, and to the Jew, it was a foolishness. Anyway, moving along. So how is it that God could care how you feel? Because let's be honest, most people don't care how you feel. I don't mean to be ugly. You are in a community of us seeing the good toward one another. This is a fulfillment of a type of prayer that King David prays when he says, God, help me to see the good of thy chosen. The reason why church people can fool you is because you've chosen to see the good in them. That's right. <clears throat> the reason why our larger organizations of uh, ministries can often be fooled by people <clears throat> who were crooks and that they were still unified in many ways or in the body and the Lord still used them because they had a gift of communicating faith and then you find out that for years they've been living a double life. You know why that happens? Because we've chosen to see the good about each other. We've chosen to get out of the business of trying to classify. We've chosen to see the good. So it's not necessarily a bad thing when the church does not dis in some way suss out like a religious detective every sin in everybody's life. What we've done is we've given each other the benefit of the doubt and we've said let it all grow up together and God's going to sort this mess out because God grinds slow but he grinds very fine. Uh, so most people don't care. And this is shown all the time in our lives. I, I came across a book recently by um, Anthony Hinton, um, <clears throat> who was arrested for murder. Uh, this is m many years ago. Um, he was first arrested because there was, he, he was sure he would be set free because there was no way he could have done the crime. Uh, this is back when factories would actually lock their employees in during the knife shift for security. And um, he was working. And so uh, there was no way he could be blamed. But because of the time and um, the racism of the community where he was, he ultimately was sentenced to life in prison for a crime he could not have committed. And um, he wrote a book that is very touching and surprisingly well written uh, called The Sun Does Shine, How I Found Life and Freedom on Death Row. It's a story of how a guy who was at work, comes home, finds out he's accused of a crime, is sure he'll be set free because, you know, he couldn't have done the crime, but no, the system is rigged against him. He protests, too, in the book, he tells of protesting, um, and this was uh, in some of the, the darker parts of the Alabama justice system. Um, he, he tells of uh, telling the officer who was the arresting officer, um, he said, look, I was at work, I couldn't have done it. And the arresting officer said this to him, I don't care whether you did or didn't do it. In fact, I believe you didn't do it. But it doesn't matter. If you didn't do it, one of your brothers did, and you're going to take the rap. Do you see the harshness? So much of the world just doesn't care. That's right. 
And yes, there are issues of uh, injustices and civil transgressions that should not to be, and we've got work to do, but we have made progress and we're arcing in the right direction and it's going to take a while until the Lord settles all this mess out. But uh, I read that book and I was just touched in my heart, but well, I, I was exposed to the book. I didn't read every single page and um, I, I was, it, I, I, it just touched my heart and um, uh, it reminded me of this, you know, <laughs> I hate to say it, but uh, I don't mean to discourage you here today. I'm just saying there's a whole bunch of your world that just doesn't care. The system will chew you up to solve a political need and won't even think twice about whether you did it. The news industry will have you for lunch as long as they get clicks. They don't care if you're innocent. They will, they will, I've seen pastors accused of things and the crowd accusing them didn't care if it was totally misunderstood. There's books out on both sides of the story, but the, the thing that is consistent is it's so easy for people not to care at all. They will burn your house down and go eat a sandwich. They do not care. And here comes the story of a God who doesn't just care, he actually cares how you feel. Now let me give you some examples of this, um, uh, of God caring about how you feel. And, uh, well, maybe I'll just say one more thing before I get into some examples of that. The truth is, all of us, no matter how good our life is, we wonder and we wrestle with this feeling about uh, meaning, about, uh, <laughs> am, I, am I doing does my life mean anything? I mean, I'm, I'm spending my years on this. Doesn't matter. We, we have a term for this. Um, we call it, well, philosophers have a term for it. Some of you guys will roll your eyes when I give you this word, but uh, I apologize in advance. We call it existential angst. Does, it, does my life matter? Um, so I, I was trying to figure out how do you explain existential angst to a child? Um, <laughs> uh, maybe you guys could do a better job than me. How? A child knows a pure joy that oftentimes we get old and grumpy and we lose the capacity for that pure joy. A child can have a party with a rubber spoon, which would become a diadem, or a sword, uh, and a cardboard box, which can become a chest of treasure. All the while, we sit over in our chair wondering why Bob at work doesn't like us. Is this too real for you today? And our kids are like, Waza, I will fight you for the treasure. Be gone, evil, demonic dog of despair and destruction. Well, maybe your kids don't do that, but my kids do, so... Um, how do you describe existential angst to a people? So, to a, so, so here's an attempt. Are you ready for this? Existential angst is a big word for a feeling some people have when they think about their lives and the world around them. It's like when you're in a big room with lots of doors and you don't know which door to choose or what's behind the doors. You might feel a little worried. You might feel a little confused or even a little scared because you don't know what to do or what will happen next. And you might feel this way when you think about who you are. You might feel this about this way when you think about why you're here. And you might feel this way about uh, wondering what your purpose in life is. 
and you're unsure about choices you made, and sure it was the decision at the moment, but looking back, it doesn't feel like a good use of your life. If you lose a favorite toy and feel really sad because you're unsure if you'll ever find it again, that's a little bit like existential angst, but the feeling is about bigger things in life. Why would people in their natural state assume God doesn't care about them? Well, uh, that's a different research project and question angle. And it would, it would have to go like this. Um, first of all, um, people are surrounded by the natural world, which is full of unpredictable and strange things. And so they would decide that God um, would be like the events in their life, unpredictable, strange, storms, earthquakes, droughts. Uh, these must represent the way, the way that uh, God that God is, and God comes along and <clears throat> tells people that uh, he's not like an unpredictable storm. Yes. He loves you. Um, sure, there is the unpredictable in your life, but it's because you were created in his image. You're not a pet. You're created in his image. You too are a creator. You too choose. You too make a world out of your decisions. It's your world, and you're not a pet locked in the backyard. You are one who becomes thus. You live with a sense of self, not just a, you know, throw the ball, I'll chase it. A ball is enough truth for a dog. Number two. Um, uh, individual might reflect on human experience and they would think about the great people they know and how they act and how they're self-focused and uncaring toward others and they would think, well, let's scale that up. Maybe that's why God's that way. Um, third, you might believe in many different gods that would reflect all the potentials of the human story. Other people, they might believe in a type of balance and order. Uh, the idea that there's competing deities and uh, you're in the middle wrestling it all out. Or uh, you might believe in a natural social order where just as the wealthy and mighty don't care about the poor, that must be how, how God is. All of these are potentials of how we get to this idea that God doesn't care. But remember, we're taking this question seriously and we're looking at how Christianity and uh, the Hebrew Bible speaks to this issue in all of our lives and seeks to answer this question in all of our lives. And uh, so I want to uh, real quick give you a few quick stories. Uh, first, the classic text on this issue. Mark 4, verse number 35. On the same day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now, when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. Excuse me. <coughs> they took him in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. That's one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, because whenever I feel alone, I always think to myself, I'm not alone. There's other little boats with me. 
<laughs> verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? This is the fundamental text on does God care on how it feels to be me. But they, like all of us, miss the moment and they miss the understanding of the moment. So let me say this to all of you. If you feel like God doesn't care, it's a, there's a much greater chance that you're missing the moment than you are speaking to the nature or character of God because God cares and he cares and he cares. What they should have said, what they should have said is this. Teacher, do you, do you not care that we feel like we are perishing? Do you see the difference in those two statements? On one hand, you say, I am perishing. On the other hand, you say, I feel like I am perishing. All of our growth happens in the battlefield of our feelings. And when the Lord does not fix the problem, it's because we're in the battle of spiritual becoming. Our faith is growing. Our hope is growing. And when you come to the end, you will know you are at the end of your faith when you mistake your feeling for truth. That's the end of your faith. When you cannot see the truth separate from your feelings. Where does faith go to die? That's where it goes to die. When I cannot separate the difference between what is true and what feels to be true. And that's what they do. They say, you don't care that we're perishing. They confuse reality from feeling. They weren't perishing. Jesus is sleeping in the boat. He's He's lower than they are. And he's still breathing. If Oh, y'all aren't about to get what I'm about to give you. You're not be able to pick up what I'm about to lay down right here. What keeps you up in terror and tears doesn't even wake Jesus up from a nap. And it would have to get to him before it killed you. Oh, y'all didn't. Y'all, y'all, y'all. I'm doing my best, darling. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. It'd have to kill him. Why? He weighs everything before it comes to you. But in your moment, you can't tell the difference in how it feels and how it is. And I am chief of sinners. So he awoke and rebuked the wind and uh, said, why are you fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Does God care about you? Or is he just kind of a fog bank of theological potential on the horizons of our life? Uh, I want to give you three ways that the Bible shows in story form, not just in quotation, but in story form. I don't have time to do all of these, okay? Uh, I'm going to wrap it up soon. But this is uh, three ways that he cares for you. The first thing is he cares for you through provision. He cares for you through provision. And he shows this to you not just with quotation, but he shows it to you as lived story. He tells you the story. 
so you can stand not just on a quote, but you can stand on the story. And I want to surprise you a little bit with a little bit of a story. Uh, all of you are familiar with the feeding of the 5,000. Very few of you are familiar um, if you are... Uh, ready for this. Very few of you are familiar with 2 Kings 4. Um, let me read 2 Kings 4, verse number 42. Then a man came from Baal, Shalisa, uh, <clears throat> and brought the man of God bread of the first fruit. Somebody say he paid tithes. Yeah. 20 loaves of barley bread and newly ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, what, shall I set this before 100 men? You can't feed 100 men with 20 loaves of bread. Uh, this is not enough for us to feed. And he said again, he said again, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. Yes. I'm going to need somebody to help me preach. I'm going to need you to find someone. Here's somebody. I need you to tell them this. God says you're going to have enough and you're going to have more left over. Because there's no blessing of God that doesn't include other people. I wish someone to give God some praise in this house right now. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, it is an echo of what happens here in 2 Kings chapter number 4 because he blesses, they break the bread, they feed until they have leftovers. It's the same thing. How can I set this for 100 men? What am I going to do with uh, five loaves and two fishes? Uh, how am I going to set this before the people? And the prophet says, give it to the people to eat for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. God shows you he cares by providing for your needs. And he will always provide enough where you can include somebody else in what God has done. Do you want to know how to send heaven a signal that you don't know what to do with his blessing? Would you like to know the secret of sending heaven a signal that you don't know what to do with his blessing? Make sure you receive, but you don't share with anybody else. That'll be your way of letting heaven know. Anyway, moving along. Uh, so uh, the second is protection. Provision, the second is protection. Uh, there was a missionary couple, John and Mary Patton, who went to the South Pacific, the New Hebrides uh, Islands, uh, November 1858. They built a small house at Port Resolution. They took over the work from a Canadian missionary, John Getty. Uh, and the problem was uh, then the natives of Tana were cannibals. And they knew they were going there. And there had been conflict before and people killed before. Um, whenever ships were wrecked in that area, the sailors would die and, yes, be consumed by the cannibals. And they decided to go there. And uh, they recorded it as painted savages who were enveloped in the superstitions and cruelties of heathenism at its worst. The men and ch children went about in a state of nudity while the women uh, wore... Uh, anyway, you get the idea. Um, so the three months after they arrived, three months after they arrived, um, their, their, uh, their son, uh, Robert... Uh, 
Robson was born, and just 19 days later, uh, Mary uh, died from uh, tropical fe fe fever, soon to be followed in the grave by the newly born uh, Peter um, uh, at 36 days of age. I'm sorry, I'm missing some of these names um, because I'm, I'm skipping through this information. Uh, Patton uh, buried his wife, and he stayed there uh, with his child um, who would... You know, they had one child already. That was the the the, the name I mentioned earlier, um, and he he had to sleep on the graves of his wife and his child in order to keep them from being uh, dug up for the first few part, um, and either um, uh, in some way used in rituals of uh, the various beliefs of the people. If you go to these islands today, there's still a plaque there where they were buried, and you can see the spot where he slept to protect their bodies. Um, he continually put his life at risk, and um, at least once they had to flee for their lives. Um, they were surrounded, and they were uh, looked like they were going to die, but um, a ship uh, arrived just in time and, and rescued them off the island. Uh, there's another testimony they tell. It's in his book that he wrote of how uh, they were trapped in, in the home. They were surrounded by uh, the cannibals who were in their full war regalia and had come to kill them, and they began to pray. And later, many years later, when the tribal chief was converted to Christianity, uh, Pat, missionary Patton asked him why they did not break down or burn the house. They were set up to do it. Uh, the missionary knew they could. Um, and the, the, the priest, uh, not, excuse me, the chieftain, uh, who's very old and now, he said, uh, we heard you praying, and when we began to approach the house, we saw an uh, army of some type of spirits all around the house, and we were terrified, and we, we fled. Wow. There's a biblical story very similar to this, Second Kings 6. Elisha's trapped in a city called Dothan, and he thinks... Uh, or his servant thinks this is their end, that they're going to die. Elisha seems to be undisturbed, and he says to his servant, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them, verse 16. And the Lord opens the eyes of the servant. The scripture says that he looked and saw the hills filled with horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. Uh, why do I tell you these stories? Uh, I know I could give you quotes, but I want to give you stories. Uh, one of the ways God cares for you is to protect you. That's the good. Now, let me tell you the difficulty of this. We have a hard time being thankful for that which didn't happen because we never saw it. And as a result, we can sometimes miss the opportunity of living as worshipers because there is no proof for that which didn't happen. There's only the believer saying, God, I know you protected me this week. I can't count the ways you have protected me. I can't count the times you have delivered me, but you have protected me. And I want you to know that I am blessed beyond any measure to have you in my life. You have protected my family. You've protected my children. You've protected this church. Though the enemy seek to harm, you have been a very present help in time of trouble. And I'm here to say, thank you, Lord Jesus. I'm here to say, great is your name in all the earth. I'm here to say, though hell tried to destroy, hell could not because you had raised a hedge of protection around your people. And we bless you today. 
Lastly, I want to end with this as our musicians come, and I've got a ton of information here I'm not even touching um, because of time's sake, but the last way in which God uh, protects you and uh, shows you his real uh, protection and his care in your life is by lifting up your spirit in times of discouragement. If you try to serve God any length of time at all, you will have intimate introduction to discouragement. Uh, There's no question about that. The next thing will be what you do with the discouragement that you are experiencing. Uh, You process it with faith or you process it with fear. But there is no future in which you don't process it. There's no path where you do not process your discouragement. Everybody get discouraged and everybody processes it. How do you process your discouragement? You can process it through faith. Somebody say, help me, Lord. Or you can process it through fear. I got some agreement over here. You can process it through faith. You can process it. But there's no future where you don't process your discouragement. You're not getting away with just pretending it's not there. So what are you discouraged about? It's going to be different for you than me. I might be discouraged because my wife beats me up regular. You might be discouraged because uh, you expected to have be debt free by now, and you just got hit with some crap. Excuse me, I'm cussing in church with some 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 mess you didn't see coming. What are you discouraged about? How are you processing it? There's no future where you don't process it. It's just do you process it in faith or do you process it in fear? Do you turn to God or you turn to self? Do you wait upon the Lord or do you rush? These are the questions that we wrestle with. Uh, the Lord cares about how you feel. Now, let me show this to you. And I, I've got a ton of illustrations in the Bible. I just got to pick one, okay? Why would God care and make a part of the institution of sacrifice? Why would he care about such a thing as guilt? Why would God care about giving you a way to manage guilt? Why would he care? You would think that most of us who use guilt as a weapon, man, we cut to the bone with guilt. I mean, I know I do. We cut to the bone with guilt. How do you? Why would God care about how you felt? There is this one symbolic moment in Old, not even New Testament, Old Testament worship. It's called the scapegoat. And what the people do is through the priesthood and in some ways uh, more than just the symbol, but there's this, this corporate or all of them together in this moment and they place on the head of the scapegoat all of their wrongs. Why would God do that? Because he doesn't want you to carry your mess into tomorrow. God cares about how you feel. There's no other reason for him to put, even in the Old Testament, a scapegoat. And then say, you feel like you've done anything really, really ignorant? I know I have. (laughs) I mean, not as much as you. But that's funny. I don't care what you all say. That's how you know you're struggling. You get to bless them, Lord. God says, here, I don't want you to carry this sense of embarrassment into tomorrow. Here's a scapegoat. I want you to put your hand on the scapegoat's head. 
And I want you to say, all the dumb stuff I've done ends today. That's right. Come on. All the embarrassment, all the shame, it ends today. I'm not carrying it out of here. I am not carrying it out of here. Mr. Scapegoat, I'm putting this mess on you. And we're sending you into the wilderness. Because right. I don't need you being the lid on my tomorrow. Yes. Stand with me all across the house. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.